Good morning. My name is Adam, if we haven't had a chance to meet. And uh, I would have to say, uh, if we were going to do our Christmas decorating party on November 6th, uh, I'd be okay with that. Um, but also, you know, it's a little bit late because the decorations have been up on my house since uh, mid-October. So um, it was a little bit later this year than, uh, than it typically is. But I really kind of feel like if we're in the burr months, you know, if it ends in burr, like that's pretty much Christmas already. So um, we can just uh, start getting it, getting them uh, going there. So um, maybe I should just preach. Maybe that's what I'll do. <laughs> Let me pray before we do that. Holy Spirit, would you come and uh, make us aware of your presence with us? Father, I pray that, that as we become aware that you are God with us, I pray that, that we would also feel the love that you have for us. I pray that as we feel that love that you have for us, I pray that, that we would also be aware of the love that others have for us. And I pray, Father, that you would also make us aware of the love that we have for those others. I pray that we would feel a connection today through your spirit. And I pray that as we pre prepare to get feasty, that we would know that you're joining us at the feast. So would you be with us this morning in Jesus' name? Amen. We've been going through the parables, uh, uh, several of the parables that we find in Scripture, these teachings that Jesus provides. Um, but one reason that I like to read the, the parables and really all of the gospel that's authored by the Apostle Luke is something that N.T. Wright points out in his Commentary for Everybody series. Uh, while some envision the Christian life as uh, it reflected in, in a journey or um, you know, maybe a, a road that we walk, what we get from Luke's version of the Christian life is that it's reflected as a party. Like there, we are always partying in Luke's gospel, and I love that. So many of the stories that, that Jesus tells end in a feast. All of the, the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties of navigating relationship with God and with others end in a feasty party as we find this end state of abiding in him. I like this presentation of the Christian life for so many reasons. The first is, it's just cool. And I like food. And I like y'all. And so we get to put that stuff together. This is the thing that, that makes it really cool is that, that to get feasty, you have to have friends. You have to get feasty with people. It's not really a feast. It's, I think it's just gorging if it's by yourself, right? And I'm not saying I haven't done that. I'm just saying that, that for it to be feasty, we got to be doing this with friends. And so getting feasty is predicated on a requirement that we do it together. We need community in order to get feasty. We get to do this together. And honestly, this is something that, that has come out so much in, in these parables that we've unpacked. I can't imagine doing this without y'all. I can't imagine doing this alone. And it makes so much sense to me why one of the tactics of the enemy is to try to isolate. Because when we're isolated, we can't get feasty. Next, 
I think another reason why I like this is it's a picture of joy. And, and it's a picture of joy that comes at the culminating of events. It's marking the culmination of an event with a celebration. And I love that. I loved, like, like even in, in elementary school, when we would get, you know, a, a popcorn party to behave, like, that was the thing that would get me to behave, because I just wanted to get to that popcorn with my friends, right? We mark events with celebration. The feast at the end of the trail is a beacon to keep on going, to keep on keeping on, to get to a place of rest, to get to a place of, of replenishment, to get to a place of order. And so we've got the, the feast waiting at the end of the trail that promises restoration. We do Sandwich Sunday and, and communion as, as a nod to, to this reflection of the Christian life, this feastiness, uh, but also to, to be together and to get to experience the fruit of our collective journey with Jesus as we demonstrate the ministry of reconciliation. The party after finding the lost sheep, the party after finding the lost coin, the party after the return of the lost son, we see joy in that. But we, we also see it isn't just joy in our being found. Even more, we see the joy of the Father that did the finding. And that is just unreal to think about. It isn't just our joy. The joy of the Father. And, and so what does that mean? What does it mean that, that this celebration, the reason we have this celebration is because the, the Father, the joy of the Father is, is on display. It means that his love for us is evidenced in celebration. It's appropriate that we would replicate this and, and that we would get feasty together whenever we can. So today, what we have is that Jesus is going to use the way that we behave at a feast to demonstrate how we can discern what and where we draw life from. And then we can celebrate all of that together with Sandwich Sunday. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited too. I'm excited because it's fried chicken day. And I think fried chickens, I mean, and, and you know, and I know some people, that the more legalist among us, are concerned that, a, that fried chicken does not constitute a sandwich. I beg to differ. If a, if a sandwich is defined as meat wrapped like with flour, right? But back to this. To help set up that celebration that we're going to have together. You might know that this fall we are we're using a passage from the Gospel of John to frame a study of these parables uh, of Jesus as lessons that help us understand what it looks like to abide in him. How we can define the activity to abide, what that, what that actually means. Uh, this is the foundation of our study. This is John 15, uh, 1 through 9. I'm the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that, that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, abide in me, and I will abide in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. 
Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, if you abide in me, and my, and my words abide in you, you may ask for anything that you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. Now we know as we've been unpacking this, that the word that the, the NLT translates as remain and other translations of, of scripture uh, present as abide is the Greek word meno. A Greek word that, that I've been using in, in many contexts that, that is, and in so many different context, is actually in danger of losing its Greekiness. Uh, Greek snobs the world over are burning with angst. I know this because I've heard from some of them. They're burning with angst as we've turned this word from Greek to BBC-ish. This is the language that we've created together uh, with our time together, BBC-ish. So understanding this in either the Greek or the BBC-ish both breaks a paradigm and it helps us create an accurate one. You didn't know that our time together actually made us bilingual, did you? <laughs> now the closest that English gets to minnow is to abide, to remain, to endure, to stay with, or to continue. It also can be related to, to a place to stay or to dwell, a place to remain. Minnow is a word that, that John uses often both in the gospel that he wrote and in the letters that, that he wrote included in the New Testament because it creates a metaphor of dwelling and hospitality to describe the relationship between Jesus and those that, uh, that, that believe in him. We also see the word minnow used to describe the relationship between Jesus the Son and, and God the Father as a mutual abiding, a mutual remaining in each other. So in the passage that we just read, the call to abide, to remain in Jesus, this paradigm that we have to break, sometimes this can be misunderstood as, as a call or a threat to behave, to be good. Or you might lose your place, be cut off and burned. This, this misunderstands the very character of God. It misunderstands how his intervention is an invitation to life. What we found during this fall series is that the passage means to minnow in Jesus is to draw life from him. To minnow Jesus is to draw life. And when we draw life from Jesus, we draw life from nothing else. To draw life is more than just to be nourished. It's more than just to be sustained by. It's a transformative reality that pushes out all things that are not Jesus and leaves only that which is Jesus. The change affects everything. It affects the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we act, the way that we live. That reality is something that becomes clear when we see what Jesus taught in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 10 through 20. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, Try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. 
Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you realize you've offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, every plant not planted by my heavenly father will, will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, explain to us the parable that says, people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. And that, that's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. What we see here is that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, we engage the world. What's in us is what comes out in our engagement with the world. So in the context of what we're, we're, we're walking through here together, what we draw life from, what fills us, is what will be expressed by our thoughts, words, and deeds. The way that we act, the way that we react, the way that we treat others, even the very manner in which we view the world is evidence of what we do and what we don't draw life from. Jesus is providing us with all that we need to evaluate ourselves and our communities based on this. And so that brings us to today when we think about the overflow of my heart being an expression to you about where I draw life from. Luke 14 has a parable that, that, that really, it hits me deep. It, it, it's forcing me to examine that what I draw, draw life from, if it isn't Jesus, can be an identity issue. Now, the first time that I read this parable, I, I moved right along. I checked the box of reading it, and I continued on my way because it kind of pricked at me. You ever kind of been pricked at? This kind of pricked at me. And so it made me move a little bit faster. So I just kept, kept on going. But Jesus wanted a bit more. He wanted me to spend a little bit more t time with it because this hits me in a place of my greatest struggle. It hits me in the place of knowing who I am to God and how the overflow of my heart from this struggle affects my behavior. So, join me in Luke 14 for the parable of Adam's faulty identity, known by some as the parable of the invited guests. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit at the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed 
and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come to you and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you'll be honored in front of the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors. They will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those that could not repay you. So there's a couple of lessons here that we can extrapolate. One, a lesson of humility, and the other of generosity and hospitality. Uh, for us today, we are looking at humility. Now, pride and status are cultural issues in every culture that ever has been. Pride and status has affected every culture in all of history and will likely affect all culture until Jesus comes again. Here we see it in the ancient Jewish culture that Jesus was a part of, this pride and status becoming a cultural issue at this wedding feast. Daryl Bach in his commentary on this parable points to a destructive spiritual equation that's at play here with pride. Status brings power, and power begets pride. Now, pride is pretending to a greatness. Pretending to a greatness that doesn't belong to me. Pretending to a greatness and a glory that only belongs to God. Also, the more I'm examining this with myself as the subject of that examination, pride is always a defense mechanism. Pride is always a defense mechanism. It, it's a, a fake strength that really expresses weakness. It's a fake strength that, that really expresses insecurity. And with all of that, it reveals an identity issue. So granting the fact that, that I can see in my past self and some residual of my, my current self as a person that would compete for the seat of honor and act with pride in this parable, I can see myself doing that. I'm left with this question. This is, this is where I'm going with, with this for me right now, the question is, why the heck do I do that? Why do I do that? Why do I want that seat of honor? Why do I compete for that place? Why is the, this, uh, the, this destructive spiritual equation at play in my life? What is going on with this? I can read this parable and I can immediately see the point that Jesus is making. I see the wisdom. I see the implications, but seeing all of that doesn't instantly translate my ability to not do it. Understanding everything that Jesus is saying here doesn't mean that I can correct my behavior unless I understand where that behavior comes from. The reason I can't provide instant correction 
is because we are talking about relationship, not about behavior. Changing behavior is something that, that I can outwardly accomplish for a time, never for too long, but I can definitely do it for a time, especially if there's a reward at stake. I can change my behavior in order to reach that, that, that award. But if I don't address the root of that behavior, that change is not going to keep. And it might lead to more emotional turmoil than I started with. So here is a broad overreach that may not be much of a broad overreach when we consider it. When we find the answer to the question of why do I do that? We find the why is rooted in my relationship with God, the relational component that's driving my behavior, the behavior, evidence of relational health, this is manifest in the way I view who I am to God and who I am to other people. Now, if I'm drawing life from Jesus, it's going to be evident. If I'm not, that'll be evident as well. The reason that I can see myself as one that competes to sit in the place of honor is because what I realize I'm drawing life from isn't Jesus. It's that I want Jesus to see me. I want God to see me. I want affirmation. I want others to see me as well. I want affirmation from others. It isn't Jesus that I'm drawing life from. It's the affirmation of other people. It's my place in their life. It's my desire for a place at the table. I want God to see me because sometimes it's hard to know if he does see me, and that makes me feel insecure. We saw in the, parable, the parables of the lost, the sheep, the coin, and the son, a love that ended in, in feastiness, a great celebration motivated by love that compels Jesus to go to the cross with each of us in mind. Knowing that the party he throws for us rather than the party he throws for them can be central for clearing the identity hurdle that makes us compete for God's attention and operate with pride and it also beckons us to abide. When we're able to realize that that party is for me. That party's for you. That party's not for them. Now it is for them, right? But it's for us. 
we can begin to clear that hurdle. This is where clearing the hurdle begins. Matthew chapter 3. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Now I can see this. It makes sense that, that the Father would say this about Jesus. 100%, I could see this being something that God the Father would say about his son Jesus. The difficulty for me has been the reality that he says it about me as well. And so then we have Hebrews chapter 2. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. That physical relationship, brother and sister, can be read and understood as blood relatives. The blood relation makes this true for me and for you. Just as Jesus is, so are we the dearly loved of the Father. Just as Jesus is, so are we worthy of a feast. Worthy of the security that would make it possible to take the humble seat at any table because we are certain of the Father's love for us. This awareness is, is of vital importance for us in terms of the ability to abide in him. But it's also important to accept the invitation to participate in his plan without attempting to manipulate God into participating with my plan. It's central that we know this truth in order for that to occur. This point is also the very battlefield for salvation. This knowledge of our belovedness, the knowledge of our feast-worthiness, this is the battlefield for salvation. This point is where the powers and principalities of darkness war against the will of God. This is life, understanding this point. To understand the truth that you are the dearly loved of God is to be armed with the weapons of war. It's in this that we can trust God and submit to his will. And when we recognize this reality in others, we can join them in that common purpose of God's will and become the body of Christ. When we recognize our belovedness, when we're able to see the belovedness in those that we're with today, we become the church. And all of that results in a feast. We're not the church if we don't know that we're the beloved of God. If I question my identity and you question yours, when we meet in this building, we're not the church. We're just some folks that are in the same place at the same time every week. We're people that need a party. So all of what we do must be built on the foundation of who we are and from where we draw life. 
How can we tell others about who we truly are? People worthy of a party. Feastable people. Not that we feast on. That kind of, that might get a little weird. Uh, maybe a further edit was due on that. Um, but how can we tell others that they're worthy of a party if we don't know that we are worthy of a party as well? If we question it ourselves, how can we be the church if we question whether or not we're the beloved of God? Henry Nouwen says that uh, we can only give that gift We can only give the gift of that knowledge of being worthy of a party, knowing that we are the dearly loved of God insofar as we believe it ourselves. So the simple answer is we can't do it if we don't know it. At times we don't know it because the voice of God is drowned out by the voice that, that, that we aren't good enough, that we don't have enough, that we've made bad choices that we failed, that we're not worthy. All of this beckons us into self-rejection, which is the opposite of a party. We take on the identity of the worthless, of the failure, of the I'm not enough, as we agree with what the world says about us. Then, we attempt to address that fact. We look for worldly avenues that lead us into a cycle of self-rejection, agreement with that rejection, And then an attempt to change that narrative that leads us to more self-rejection when all of those attempts end in failure as well. This is the battleground of identity. This is the battleground that leads us to the place of seeking the seat of honor. Because even arrogance is a form of self-rejection. Now, because I spend a lot of my time with you, I don't know a lot of arrogant people, right? And I've never had an issue with arrogance myself, right? You may know people like this that present such a high view of themselves in an attempt to mask the fact that they actually really despise their own image. There's likely some of that at play in this parable. Those that are competing for the seat, likely many of them are masking what they really feel about themselves as they seek the affirmation of the group. They present something fake because they're ashamed of what's real. They They compete for place because they're afraid of what place they might actually hold. So arrogance and low self-esteem are hallmarks of those that do not know their belovedness. As, As Henry Nouwen points out as well, the cycle makes it difficult for us to hear what we saw Jesus hear as he was baptized, that this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Because that voice, the voice that tells us we must prove we have worth through accomplishment 
it makes so much more sense than the voice that calls us to the table. Some of us, and this has been me for a, for a bulk of my life, have attempted to do the work of God, have attempted to know God, have attempted to be in relationship with God without knowing my own belovedness. What is produced by that is behavior rather than relationship. It's old wineskins attempting to hold on to new wine. It leads to work rather than faith. While I try to earn what was freely given, I search for the hard road. I search for the hard road to achieve it because somehow it would make more sense to me if I had to work for it. Because it makes more sense to me if I have to work for it, I navigate in that direction. I do all of these things out of the hurt that results from not knowing who I am to the Father. And that leads to the reality that hurt people hurt people. And so it perpetuates. So what do we do? How do we recognize our feastiness? How do we move towards the feast that's prepared for us? We listen to the inner voice of love. We listen to the voice that calls us out of hiding. We listen to the voice that calls us treasure. We listen to the, to the voice of the image that we bear. We listen to the voice of the one that calls us masterpiece. We listen to the voice of the one that says that is the work of art that defines the artist. We listen to the voice that says, this is my beloved on whom my favor rests. We listen. And then we take our place at the table without even recognizing where that place is because we already have honor that matters. The honor that comes from drawing life from the living God. We can abide together, and then we get to get feasty. So before we get to our feast, we're going to start this party again by returning to worship and asking the living God to come, to reveal himself to us, and to help us hear the inner voice of love.